I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl, I'm born in South Korea, and I became the first Asian American to become a rabbi or a cantor in North America. And I now have the privilege of serving as the senior rabbi of Central Synagogue in Manhattan, which is one of the largest congregations in the country. We shouldn't be boxed in by those conceptions of what not only a leader looks like or a rabbi looks like or a Jew looks like. We can create new models, and especially for women, because we haven't always been in these places, we need to create that picture. And it's amazing how quickly the next generation just sees that as a given. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Rabbi Angela Bookdahl is the first Asian American to be ordained as a rabbi and the first woman to become both a rabbi and a cantor. She discusses how faith has played a role in her success. Growing up, you were often one of a handful of Jewish kids in school. What was that like? I felt very proud to be Jewish, and I felt like I was the Jewish representative. And so that had a kind of uh, responsibility, but also made me feel sort of special. Um, I grew up in a school where we did a Christmas assembly every year. But then it was like, Angela, come up and light the menorah and tell us about being Jewish. So I felt like I was holding the responsibility of carrying the torch of Judaism uh, to the wider world in Tacoma, Washington, which is um, a place that didn't have a lot of Jews. So my sister and I were two of three Jews in the school. My sister was younger than me. She also took up the mantle when I left. But we used to we used to joke around that people in Tacoma thought that Jews looked like us. You had the authenticity of your Judaism question at a young age. What do you tell us about that? I think that through adolescence in particular, you're always trying to figure out who am I, what's my identity. And I was really fortunate that my parents gave me an incredibly solid foundation of knowing that I was 100% Jewish, but also fully Korean, fully American, um, that, that you could carry multiplicities within you. But I would say that from an external place, because I didn't look like your typical Jew, and because there is a traditional um, definition of Judaism that is traced through your mother's line, and my mother is not Jewish. Because of that, there were people who said, just from the legal definition, you're not actually a Jew. And there were those who challenged me just by looking at me. And I would say that those challenges were painful and created a, a whole existential identity crisis through my teenage years. Um, but it also forced me to grapple with the biggest questions of who am I and what, where do I belong, which I think is actually what religion at its best helps us to figure out. What's your advice for women who just don't feel like they might not fit into some people's views of who they should be? how they should look. <laughs> that has been my whole life. So we have to create new models. You know, I, someone someone would say, you know, you just don't look like a rabbi. Um, but in the next generation, what's amazing to me is I've had students who said, a student of mine went to Penn and he was coming home on a train for Passover. And he looked at this Korean woman sitting across from him and he asked her, um, are you going home for Passover too? And she laughed out loud and said, do I look like I'm Jewish? And he, and he said, I don't know what was so funny. She looked just like you, um, Rabbi Bookdahl. And so I think that we often, um, sh we shouldn't be boxed in by those conceptions of what not only a leader looks like or a rabbi looks like or a Jew looks like. We can create new models, and especially for women, because we haven't always been in these places. We need to create that picture. And it's amazing how quickly the next generation just sees that as a given. It takes a thick skin, I would imagine, on some level. <laughs> yes, I'm lucky that I inherited my mother's kind of fighter instinct. How did you know you wanted to be a rabbi? <laughs> um, I was, um, I thought it was a 
not something I wanted to do when the first person sort of suggested it to me when I was younger. Um, but I was a kid who really was interested in the big questions about meaning and purpose in life. And uh, my first trip to Israel when I was 16 inspired me to become a rabbi. I had rabbis on the trip that were tremendous mentors. And the learning that I was doing was so mind-blowing and heart-opening that I thought to myself, there's a job where you get to do this all the time. That's what I want to do. And so there were a number of obstacles in the way, um, it, you know, starting with the fact that there were people who in that group that didn't even think I was a Jew. But I felt deeply called to do it. And I have to say that from the age of 16, when I sort of admitted to myself I wanted to be a rabbi, there was never a time that I considered doing anything else. Your mom wasn't necessarily supportive at first, was she? She was very nervous. Um, like any parent, you want your child to be able to succeed in life. And she felt like I was setting myself up for a job where I would not maybe perhaps um, be rejected a lot because she saw that happen in the community. And she felt like I had a bunch of strikes against me. So part of her felt like, you can do anything, Angela. Why do you want to put yourself in such a hard position? And I think she worried I'd never get a job. So, I mean, fast forward. I think once she realized this was truly what I wanted to do, she very quickly got on board and has been incredibly supportive. But I think um, it was a watershed moment when I it was announced that I'd be the senior rabbi of Central Synagogue, which is really a, a flagship um, congregation in the country. And for me to be the first woman, obviously an Asian American, um, but for me to take a position like that in this 180-year-old community, um, I think that uh, when we announced it and I would happen to be at a gathering of 6,000 reformed Jews and I was leading services, um, I had a chance to publicly thank my mother for raising me as um, a Jew and giving me that solid foundation. And the 6,000 Jews in the room gave gave my mom a standing ovation. And it was a, an incredible moment and, and a, a moment of belonging and, and gratitude. And I, I would say that, um, yeah, that made a big difference in terms of her sense of this was the right path, <laughs> yeah, I would say. Um, how, how did you handle the people who said, you know what, a woman shouldn't be leading such a prominent congregation or leading a congregation at all? I find that I do best when someone tells me I can't do something. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's the way I'm hardwired. I found that, like, I I had internal questions about whether or not I could do this job. I think that women have to um, overcome a lot of our own reservations of how am I balancing this with my life. I have three children who were relatively young when I took the job. And... Um, and also, we can't underestimate the power of not really seeing models that look like what we want to do. And so I had my own internal questions. And when people would say to me, oh, Angela, you can do it, you can do it, I would dismiss those thoughts. I thought like, ah, oh, you don't really know. But what was interesting is when someone told me, I don't think you can do it, that was the moment that I actually took stock and said, wait a minute, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> don't underestimate me. So it was interesting in at a couple of stages along the way, it was actually when I was challenged and felt um, that I was kind of put up against the wall of like, I don't think you got what it takes, that it actually was when I really like stood up and thought, oh, oh I'm going to prove them wrong. I, I know I can do this. Do you think there's a way for women to get that internal confidence without having that opposition? <laughs> I sure hope so. I think that um, one of the things I've learned is I think we all have that inner confidence and wisdom, but it gets it gets um, obscured by what I would call the white noise of you know comparing ourselves, of judgment, of the external things that people say to us. So 
I don't know what does it for other people, but for me, things like meditation, um, kind of taking care of myself, doing the things I love and pursuing kind of the things that make me feel like I'm in the flow, whether or not it's uh, singing for me or doing some yoga and some meditation. These are the things that help me clear out the white noise and help me get to the core of what I know is actually true. And I think most women actually know it in their being, but it can get it can get obscured by people saying, we don't see it, we don't know where, you know, we, we don't think you can do it, or women haven't done that before. Coming up, Rabbi Angela Bookdahl discusses how she broke the stained glass ceiling and inspires other women to follow her lead. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. How come female clergy still face that glass ceiling in all, seemingly like all religions at this point? Well, religion fundamentally is a relatively conservative enterprise. And for several thousand years in most religions, it was, you know, very patriarchal. Um, God had very masculine language and imagery. Um, it still does. And, and then even within Judaism, um, you know, women have only been in these roles for, you know, about as long as I've been alive. So it's about, you know, 40 plus years. That's not a really long time in the span of a religion that's 3,000 years old plus. So I think that there's just the institutional barriers that we have to get over. Um, but I also think that um, uh, there's just, as we've learned and it's resurfaced for me with the Me Too movement and everything else. There's just still sexism in society, which gets reflected in this as well. So we call it the stained glass ceiling. And we haven't seen a lot of women who've been able to break through that. And while I feel so grateful to be in this position, I can really count on two hands the number of women that lead large congregations in the whole country. So we still have a ways to go. What do you say to people who feel that money is in conflict with spirituality? I think um, money does not have to be in conflict with spirituality. I think money is a form of spiritual energy, and money can create in the world. It can save lives. It can feed people. It can be an expression of our values. It's how we use the money. And I think the whole point of energy is we need to put it back into the universe in in the ways that we want. So it's energy is not to be hoarded. That will short circuit us, right? And instead, we should think of how we use that money to um, exemplify and further and amplify the values that we want to see in the world. There's been a rise in anti-Semitism around the world. What do you think of that? It's been really frightening. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s. I, I grew up in a time when I thought anti-Semitism was essentially gone in America. And to see this resurgence uh, both in Europe, which has been really frightening, but also right here in New York City even, um, has been... Has been um, uh, very alarming, and I'm not a person who's alarmed easily. So I think that there's some very insidious anti-Semitic tropes that have been around literally for centuries, from kind of this sort of conspiratorial Jews controlling the world, money, media. Um, and 
I am watching them each generation. They're extremely adaptable and um, and they come back in different forms over and over again. So I, I think part of what we need to do is um, fight it. Unfortunately, when anti-Semitism is rampant, other forms of intolerance and bigotry are also um, have a field to flower in. And we're seeing that this is not just about anti-Semitism. We're seeing it about an intolerance in general for the stranger, the other. What do you say to people who say religious leaders shouldn't be involved in politics? You know, I, I think that the politics can sometimes be deeply um, moral. And when when politics concern um, moral and ethical ways that we behave in the world, then we we must in some ways be connected to them. So I think it's not about, about being partisan. It's not about taking a Republican or Democratic position, but it's about staking out a moral position. And sometimes some of the issues that get worked out in politics, they are religious issues. What do you say to people who take issue with Israel's treatment of Palestinians? So I struggle a lot with um, the Palestinian conflict in Israel. I think that um, uh, I think that it's not a situation that anyone wishes it was uh, th- th- in the way that it is. And I'm I've I've been clear with my community that I would like to see the occupation end in Israel. I think we all would. I think the the question that becomes much thornier is how that happens. And um, I think that unfortunately there's plenty of blame to go around on both sides in terms of. Palestinian leadership as well as Israeli leadership and why we're not there yet. And um, I remain kind of an eternal optimist. So I still believe that it's possible for us to get to a place for peace. And I will do everything I can to help work towards that. Recently, Central Synagogue welcomed a Muslim uh, congregation into Central Synagogue space because that Muslim congregation had a fire. How can we do that? That's just basic good neighborliness, I think. But it's interesting because it was it really that um, experience went really viral in in part because I think a um, it was recently after New Zealand, the attack in New Zealand on the Muslim community. And I guess, unfortunately, it feels too rare that you see that a synagogue is hosting a mosque. Um, and it was also in deeply moving for us as a community to host them. We had about 600 people there. And um, the imam was so grateful and said that he thought that this was one of the most holy moments he's ever had in New York to, to be able to have his community pray in a synagogue, you know, in the aftermath of New Zealand. And um, and then he hosted us the next week back in his mosque and um, thanked us and gave a beautiful sermon in which he actually quoted a Jewish rabbi, um, Moses Maimonides. It was an incredible interchange that continues today. You manage a multi-million dollar endowment for your synagogue, or you oversee it at least. What's the biggest lesson you learned about handling investments? People entrust us with their resources because they believe in our mission. And um, I guess, you know, you you don't want to squander that and you want to use that in a way that furthers uh, the mission that, that we were all like a part of. And I would say that, you know, money is a form of power, obviously. And I think we're always trying to think of how we use that power for good. I heard you also say women should have a blueprint for their time. What do you mean by that? Mm. You know, we we are planful about um, so many things that we do in our lives, hopefully our money, we think about how we're spending it. Um, but oftentimes, the most precious asset we have is our time. And we are not 
thinking about how not we're maybe looking in the short term of like how I might spend my day or even my week. But what are we actually building our time towards? What kind of life are we building? That's the big question. And and is the the way that we spend our time, is there a blueprint for that that helps us build the life that we really want to live with the people that we want to live, furthering the things that we care about? Are we going to look back and say, I've built a beautiful, productive, meaningful life? You are a working mom. What do you say to women who say, you know, that sounds great. I just don't have time for that. (laughs) (laughs) What is what is the option? I think that, um, you know, I um, I resented that when I was applying for the job that people asked me, how are you going to do this job with your three children? Um, I resented it because no. No male colleague of mine has ever been asked that question. How are you going to be the rabbi of this congregation with your children? That's never asked of men. And it was asked of me many times. That being said, it's not that I didn't think about it and think about it a lot, like how how you manage your time. And I guess I would just say that um, I have found that when I make – Uh, when I fill my calendar first with the things that are my priorities, my big rocks, and then fill in the rest of the time with the things that are a little bit less important, that I find that I'm I'm able to somehow manage what is seems most critical. Some men might say, well, but it's a fair question. Women tend to be the primary caregivers. You also want to take on a big job. So it makes sense that I'm asking you that question. What do you say? I would say that I think um, part parenting these days is a real is really a shared partnership, and I'm very lucky that I am married to someone who really sees it that way. And um, I don't think you have to be the primary caregiver. I was, I think you can be the um, primary partner <laughs> caregiver, and I would say I really do hope that that. Um, partners, whether they're male or female, um, are as engaged in parenting as, as as I am. And so we're all struggling with it. But I think a lot about how institutionally we need to do things like give men or partners the same amount of maternity or paternity leave as a woman so that it's not just seen that this is only a woman's job. There, there's some structural things that need to change for us to really see um, society and parenting in a different way. In the meantime, what's your tip for deflecting that question or handling that question? Just say, I'm confident I can do it. (laughs) How do you give and make sure you're empowering the people you're giving to? I I try not to give money um, with a lot of strings attached. I try to find people that I trust that I think are doing their jobs really well and then then give them the money with a sense of like, you are now empowered to use this the way that you need to use it. So I do my homework ahead of time. But once I do it, then I do not like say, and you have to do this and you have to check this box and you have to report back. I mean, I'm always checking in with people because I, I care about their development. And I think, you know, development's a very good word for rate fundraising because it's really about developing um, people and institutions and um, supporting values more so than it is about just giving money. But hopefully that also empowers them. What's your Passover message? Mm. I I think that um, I, I say to my Jewish community, but I think that anyone who reads the Bible as a sacred text knows that um, it's our obligation to actually say not that they were slaves, but to say we were slaves. In every generation, we're supposed to know that. And if you actually know the heart of what it is to be enslaved or what it is to be oppressed or to, what it is to be the stranger, um, you can't walk through the world in the same way. You have a different empathy for those who feel on the outside. And so my message is that we've all been there. We've all been the stranger. At one point, we know what it is. So let us walk through the world with a, a greater embrace for those who are on the outside and, and recognize that redemption is possible, always. Time now for your secrets. 
I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl, and my money secret is that we only feel as wealthy as the money that we give away. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.